Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Billy Das, the Indie Dork. What's up, Billy? Just more rad conversation every day, all day for the rest of the month. (laughs) Yeah, we are kind of insufferable right now because we are so excited about all these chats that we had down at the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans. Man, this festival, I can't I can't describe what an amazing experience it was, but I'm going to try. Let's do it. Uh, one, we talked about it last week. We drove a long distance from yeah. Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, yeah. 17 hours. We did not do it in one trip. We kind of implied that last episode. <laughs> no, no. We stopped off at Chattanooga. We slept with some dogs. Yes, that's They were true. delightful. Gary, you're my buddy. I hope you're listening right now. Gary, you are my friend. My true friend, leave Bex, <laughs> come to my house, go Benji, get out of there, run north, find me. Uh, so that was great. So happy about that. I mean, Bex was great too. Yeah, she's cool. She's yeah. cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very nice of her to let us, you know, snuggle her dogs. I just want to point out, Bex, uh, who loves you more, Brad, who's trying to steal your dog, uh, or me, who is uh, grateful for what a wonderful host you were. Yeah, 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 yeah. She got a sushi. That was That's delicious true. Actually, too. Actually, yeah, she did. But anyway, back to New Orleans right. and the Overlook Film Festival. <laughs> so yes, there are so many cool movies, so many advanced screenings. Yeah. You know, we saw Daniel Isn't Real. We saw Depraved. Uh, Robert Rodriguez was there with Red Eleven. Uh, the Dead Don't Die, Jim Jarmusch. De- yeah, The Dead Don't Die. And then, you know, they have Ghouls. podcast recordings. Unspooled did a recording there. Yeah. Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah's Visitations did a recording there. And then there are guests like Grady Hendrix. Oh, yeah who we first met at the Chattanooga Film Festival. Uh, He did a presentation of his book, Paperbacks from Hell, Mm -hmm. which was just uproariously good. I mean, like, just so much fun. I mean, if somebody said, I'm going to do an hour-long talk about the evolution of Pulp Fiction horror in the 70s uh, to the 90s. Snooze, no thank you. Yeah, right, hard pass. Uh, But, you know, Beck said, look, you guys got to sit in on this at Chattanooga. And so we did, and... Holy shit, it is uproariously funny. Did you say That's that word? That's my did word, Billy. Did you say Billy. that word? I you just did. stole your word. It's yeah. an infectious word. Yeah, it is. Well, it was an infectious presentation. Yes, I'm yeah, yeah, words yeah, again. yeah. So we <laughs> fell in love with Grady Hendrix at Chattanooga. And when you heard that he was going to uh, launch his sequel presentation mm-hmm. at the Overlook, you said, Brad, I think it's worth the 17-hour drive. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean that was that was actually my pitch to Brad. It really was. So I, I saw he tweeted. I said, "Oh, guess I'm gonna go to the Overlook." Hey, Brad, Grady's doing the sequel. Uh, we gotta go. And I've always wanted to go to the Overlook. I'm so sad that I wasn't around back when it was at the Stanley Hotel in sure, Colorado. That sure. probably would have been a, a stellar experience. But you know what? New Orleans in itself is pretty amazing. It's a magical place. Like I, you know, I've had this conversation several times now uh, at, in New Orleans. And since we've gotten back with multiple people, I don't think there's a city that is like New Orleans. It no. is unique. No. Um, if you're down there, go to Ruby Slippers Cafe and get yourself the $20 trifecta. Don't ask questions. Just do it. Consume it all. Don't worry about the consequences on the road. 
Just do it. <laughs> I mean, maybe worry about the consequences no. for the people you're traveling with, but sure. sure Forget sure. those people. <laughs> <laughs> Forget them, steal their dogs, have a good time. Uh, let's actually go into this conversation. Right, so Grady Hendricks. Yeah, Grady Hendricks. Uh, where, uh, what was the, uh, so we uh, met with Grady at the Hotel Peter and Paul, uh, which is sort of a fascinating place because they've got sort of a, a deconsecrated cathedral on their property, uh, which is actually where we got to listen uh, to Paperbacks from Hell too. And our listeners have seen the interior of this uh, church in 21 Jump Street. Mm-hmm. It's where the Jump Street gang resides. Right, but, and it's such a, it's such an amazing thing, you know, because you walk into this um, this church and it's got, you know, the vaulted ceilings, they're 40, 50 feet high, it's echoey, it's got the stained glass, the, the paint on the wall is kind of faded and all that sort of stuff. And then you have Grady Hendrix in his white seersucker suit with a black tie, uh, doing his best evangelizing for some of the insane young adult fiction from the 70s to the late 90s. Christopher Pike, man. Oh, my God. I can write that book. <laughs> I can write that book. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's jump into the conversation, and we'll meet you on the other side. Are you ready, Billy? Yeah, yeah. I think I think we'll be good. You got your... Yeah, I'm recording. I started okay. recording at the moment yeah. Grady walked in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of our favorite experiences ever was your paperbacks from hell at Chattanooga. Oh. Uh, was it two years ago? Uh, yeah. Two years ago. Not this year, but last year. That's super nice of you guys. I mean, it w- that movie, that, that movie, <laughs> that experience was really wild and... Something that, you know, I loved all of those books and I loved what you had done with Paperbacks from Hell as a book. Yeah. But to see you turn it into a performance was incredibly impressive. Oh, thanks. No, it was, it's, you know, two things. One, are you coming to the sequel? So I just finished writing the script for that last night and wow. I'm still working on the slideshow. It's really work in progress. It's going to be hairy. Yeah. So have a few drinks. It's, um, <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. This stuff comes together, like, when I make the things. You know, like, one of the reasons I make this stuff is to, like, think it out. And I realized, you know, so many teen books, like, are about controlling teenagers and, mm-hmm. like, scaring teenagers and showing them all the bad things that are going to happen to them. And... I was really, and you know, partly because I haven't done as much reading for this as I did for Paperbacks from Hell. Like, I really, there's been like spare time reading. You've been super busy. Yeah, and it's like spare time reading the last six, eight, nine months. Um, But Christopher Pike is so amazing. Like, he really is a superhero, as far as I'm concerned. Like, his, those books, those and the Choose Your Own Adventure books, which I don't have time to talk about in the show, but if this ever becomes a book I want to, are really groundbreaking. And, like, they're not trying to tell kids to be scared or that they need to be controlled. They're really, like, fucking do anything. They're um, amazing. And you could do a Choose Your Own Adventure entire book. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I think you could, but it would... I think it would get a little thin. Uh-huh. Like, you know, it's, you know, I interviewed R.A. Montgomery and Edward Packard for an article a while back. Mm. And, like, you know, uh, Packard's dead now. And I don't think, I think Montgomery might have passed away as mm. well. And it's like, and, and Montgomery's family is really like, they've kept the, the trademark and they've really closed ranks and really, I mean, they play it like a corporation, you know? So it's, but, you know, those guys hated each other. Did they? Oh, yeah, with a passion. Like, they, they weren't on speaking terms. And so, like, their editor at, I think it was Bantam, 
would be like, so, you know, I think it was Robert Montgomery. She'd be like, Rob, you know, uh, Edward's working on a Wild West book, so you can't do that one. And, you know, she'd be like, and like, they really like, they really wouldn't communicate with each other. It was bonkers. Huh. I think they respected each other uh-huh. and their talents, but they personally didn't like each other at all. Man, those were, those books were huge. They were amazing. And they were like different times, because I think I was into Choose Your Own Adventure before I ever got into Christopher Pike books. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, they were, they were, Early 80s, yeah, 84, yeah, 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 yeah. 85. Yeah, and like, sense. and you know, it's interesting. Those guys were so bummed out about the illustrations because they specifically made the main character second person you because they didn't want to gender it. They wanted girls to read them and boys to right. read them. And the illustrations, they were like, do it from the main character's point of view. Never show the main character. And I was like, <laughs> you guys write those words. <laughs> yeah. And that's, Packard thinks that's what killed them is because they alienated the female readership. And then when Sweet Valley High came along oh. in the early 90s, girls flocked to that and didn't feel any connection to choose mm. your own adventure now who knows but that's his working theory mm. um, so this is such a like to put to turn your obsession into uh, an entertainment is very like very unique in uh, well in the well I mean obviously there's like uh, people, filmmakers who are obsessed and they turn it into movies sure. or, com- you know, whatever. But like this, like collecting, you know, curating and then turning it into a book and then turning it into a stage or a performance. Right. How, how did that even begin? So I hate doing author events. Like they bore my tits off. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. they're awful. And like I hate going to them. And like you, uh-huh. you go to support your friends and stuff. But I'm like, oh man. I managed Barnes and Noble for eleven years. Okay, so, so you did. Yeah, okay, there you go. Uh, which one? Uh, I, I managed the Reston, Virginia one, the Arlington, Virginia one, and the Tyson's Corner Mall store. Where's that? In, um, in Virginia. In Virginia. Yeah, okay. all three of the district area. Yeah. So it's. I hate doing them. When I did a horror store, it's like, there's got to be a better way. And I really experimented with doing like a, a kind of show thing for my best friend's exorcism. Uh-huh. But then when Paper Acts from Hell came along, I was like, going all the way. Like, this shit should be fun. Mm-hmm. People should be excited. I don't know why books feel a need to be boring sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you've got people out there who get pumped up about this shit. And I... I it's so I'm so grateful people are giving me some time. I want them to have fun. Mm-hmm. And it's fun for me. Like, and it, it also like reorganizing the material into an hour and like having that through line and listening to what an audience reacts to helps me think through the books and what, what I think about them. Like it's such a win fucking win all mm-hmm. the way around. Like, I mean, the We Sold Our Souls show. I love mm-hmm. doing that because it's like that book was rough. And it's a, a way to A, you know, talk about heavy metal and the satanic panic, which is you know, I'm Satanic Panic is such a creepy, weird era in American history that's uh-huh. like kind of getting brushed under the rug as yeah. time goes on, and it's really, it's not wasn't healthy. Um, and uh, and so doing that shows like just I really enjoy it. Like, but for personal reasons, just cathartic to get a lot of mm-hmm. that pus out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the Paper Axe of Hell show and the Think of the Children one, it's just. Fun. I like people having a good time. But to take it from book events mm. to now bring it to Chattanooga or the Overlook, yeah. like what was was that just it just seemed logical once yeah. you did it? I mean I know film festival people mm-hmm. from founding the New York Asian Film Festival mm-hmm. and doing all that. And you know, Fantasia, I know Mitch and the and King and, and those guys really well. And they were all like, you know, I'd wanted to go up there. They're like, why don't you ever come to our festival? I'm like, I don't know, I'm an ass. And I was like, I'm doing this show. And they're like, bring it. And so that was the first time. And people had so much fun. And it was like, 
And so I did the Paybacks for Hell one. I did We Sold Our Soul there. I'll probably do Think of the Children maybe next year. Like, you know, it's just like, I know film festival people. And, you know, it's like, why not? You know, they're rowdy. They drink. They know pop culture. They're smart. Well, once we experienced it at Chattanooga, it seemed like such a logical thing. Like, what a a great, uh, you know, event. But it's just not something I, like, are other authors or or is there a a version of this elsewhere that is occurring? Not that I'm aware of. But like, you know, Joe Bob Briggs did that whole history of exploitation Mm -hmm. thing, which I thought was great. Mm -hmm. I mean, the third hour, I was a little bit like, oh, (laughs) Jesus, man, you're killing me. It's too much of a good thing. But like the first, like, I would say two hours of that, I was like dead yeah. like hypnotized uh-huh. um, and, and you know he's someone who's like you know it's that carnival barker thing mm-hmm. yeah. you know it's I don't know it's I just feel like it's something I'd want to see so why not right and there's a visual component does the uh, what comes first the the obsession with this sort of very niche history and then finding a way to turn that into something that's entertaining to other people or are you are you casting about looking for ideas and then you say, oh, well, shit, actually, there's, yeah, there's something here. That. <laughs> you know, it's like paperbacks from hell. I was just writing those columns for tour uh-huh. um, because I was reading the books in thrift stores because I wanted to know what the hell all these horrible... I didn't know who any of these people were, mm-hmm. these authors and these books. Like, they were before my time, really. I didn't read horror as a kid. And, uh, except the obvious stuff, like King. Um, and then, you know, write the book and then, okay, do that. You know, and that made me put it all, get it all organized. Um, Doing uh, the great Stephen King reread, that was really just like, I wanted to reread those books. And right. the first 10, you know, in right. eight, five years of my life. But mm-hmm. like, it was, I got so much out of doing that, you know. And and this Think of the Children thing, this is a show first and maybe one day will be a book. But like, it's been really educational just to look at teen fiction mm-hmm. pre-Harry Potter, pre-97, because it's so different. It's shorter. Uh, there's less of it. It's less supervised. It's angrier and well, more Well, the adults anti-kid. hadn't come to it yet, right? Like yeah. Harry Potter's when it was like anybody can read these books. And now, well, and, and Harry Potter took the curse off right, of it, right? Yeah. Adults were reading it. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, adults weren't going to read The Girl Who Owned a City or, mm-hmm. you know, um, Rumblefish mm-hmm. or, you know, like not yeah. with any pride. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like it just was juvenile. It was juvenile right. fiction is what it was classified as mostly. Yeah. Hmm. So... Why, well, let me not say it that way, but like, you clearly love your subject and you put so much time into it and like, to take an obsession and then turn it into your own art, does it take a, a like, does it take the veneer off? Does it take the enthusiasm or is you now... Double down. Oh, double down. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you know, I love some of these authors so much. There's one thing I like about doing that Valancourt line is I want people to read these. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to read Barry Woods' The Tribe. I want them to read Thomas Page's Spirit. You know, I want them to read The Auctioneer. Like, I, I don't understand why these authors are forgotten. I mean, I understand why they're forgotten. But, like, why are we losing some of these amazing books? You know, and, and, and legit harm comes from it. You know, there's a X-Files episode called... Um, uh, Kaddish, uh, Kaddish, I can't, yeah, um, yeah, for yeah. now, I'm putting my I, I emphasis all around, but um, it is literally the plot of Barry Woods, The Tribe, 
uh-huh. made into an X-Files episode. And oh. they just lifted it because by then the book was out of print and it was long forgotten. And there, there is, you will never convince me that it's not a lift. And it's like, fucking send her a check. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like it really bums me out. And, you know, this, this myth that, like, horror is a boy's genre. I'm like, dude, these women have been writing it forever. Right. They, they just get forgotten. You know, they, they don't get preserved. They don't network the same way, you know. You look at, like, Nikon or any of these, like, convention scenes where horror people go, like the horror literature people, and a lot of the female cover artists would go, but the female writers didn't, mm-hmm. you know? And so they don't network, and so they don't get on the, the, the map of a lot of these other writers, and they get forgotten, you know? Mm. And so in stewing in this, like, are you – you're in the thick of it right now with the second one, Paperbacks yeah. from Hell 2 as a performance uh, are, and you're writing it are you still so you're still adding to it are you still discovering things that you want to then put into it or oh, you have the framework done tons of stuff I'm yeah. discovering you know doing this show it's like insane I'm trying a bunch of stuff and seeing what works mm-hmm. but like you know, there's all, I'm leaving out the Choose Your Own Adventure books, which are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the girls series books, which I want to touch on at least, I'm, I'm leaving out. And those got weird. Like Sweet Valley High, there's like three of those books where like there's a serial killer. There's three of them where they meet, one dates a, I think Jessica or Liz dates a vampire. Like what the fuck? And it's, he's an actual vampire. Um, it's like, so in the Sweet Valley High world, vampires are real? What? Um, I'm leaving out the a lot of the survival books, which... You know, the 70s are bonkers because the 70s were really about drug books and like, you're yeah, on, yeah, go out. out. Yeah. yeah, and they were a lot of scare books and kidnapping books and all that. You're out of control, you crazy kids. And, and you know, you're at the mercy. Someone's going to spike your Coca-Cola and you're going to be on LSD <laughs> and, out of, and dangerous. And the, the world is, is dangerous. And the only antidote to that were these survival books, which are often about kids lost in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, My Side of the Mountain got reprinted a lot in the 70s. Um, Hatchet's 90s, but a walking out, signpost to terror. Uh, A bunch of other ones were about kids who were sort of forced to survive and like often in nature. And they often were like, I don't want to go back to civilization. Fuck civilization. It's got nothing to offer me. I'm, I, I've got everything I need. I'm smart. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm can rely on myself. Um, so I'm leaving those out just, there's no room for them. Um, and I think I'm going to have to leave out this great book called The Girl Who Owned a City, which is like a virus kills everyone over the age of 12. And this like 10-year-old girl forms like a child army and rises up from the ashes. It's a little like Dune in a weird way. But it was also written by a dude who never wrote anything else. And he was a libertarian. And it's his his attempt to propagandize teenagers with libertarian values. Like, like kids are like, well, you found all this food. We're going to share it. She's like, it's my food. Find your own food. Rely on yourself. <laughs> but we're starving. That so I was starving too, but I relied on myself. It's really kind of crazy. Huh. So take process wise. So why does that book not make it into the performance? Timing. Timing. You know, it's like, yeah, this show's already long and mm-hmm. it's like, and you know, I really want to get a lot of the horror stuff in mm-hmm. there from the 80s and 90s because I feel right. like that's what people really, you know, sure. I spend a lot of time on good girl books and juvenile delinquent books because mm-hmm. that's sort of where all that stuff comes out of. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people really want to hear about like Christopher Pike, who, right. yeah, yeah, but R.L. Stein. It's a name. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. R.L. Stein, I can't. 
There's no writer I hate more, I think, than R.L. Stein. I just, I, I get his impact and I get why he's important. And he gives me like a giggle. He's a funny writer. Right. But man, he like really, his books are so toned down. I mean, I think there was an editorial well, dictate that they can't kill kids. As somebody who grew up loving like Stephen King, like that's yeah. who I was reading at the time. And then so when R.L. Stein came and popularized it for my age bracket, I was offended by that. Yeah. I was like, we could all just be reading Stephen King. Yeah. We don't well, need the dummy. And like, and you know, and every R.L. Stein chapter ends with like this jump scare. It's uh-huh. always like, footsteps were approaching from behind. She uh-huh. whirled and screamed. Uh-huh. And someone would be like, you dropped your keys, miss. Or like, hi, I saw you from across the mall. Like, right, right, or, right, you want right. to go to the dance? And it's like every, you know, she walked into her bedroom and saw a corpse and screamed. And then it's like, she turned on her light. It was her jacket draped over the back of her chair. It's like every fucking chapter. But you've done the work. You've read all that stuff. You've tortured yourself. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then not to use it. Yeah, well, the R.L. Stein's in there. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. okay. I kiss all over R.L. Stein, which I feel bad about. He's a nice guy by all accounts, and the books are entertaining. I think a lot of kids, like, and the Goosebumps stuff is fun, but it's just, and and much more, like, um, horror than his Fear Street stuff. But, Mm -hmm. God, I hate those stuff. (laughs) Well, you know, what, what, what I was... What I keyed into your first paperbacks from hell was that it wasn't ironic love. It's clear that you yeah. enjoy that. But there is an audience that, you know, picks up your book and goes like, oh, man, Guy Smith crab books. I need, I yeah. need all the crab books, you know, because that's hilarious. Yeah. So, you know, how do you, how do you communicate to... Because your 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 audience are going to take your your performance for however it is. Right. How do you communicate what you you know that passion, that sincerity? Yeah, I don't know. Like you know, it's um, it's uh, I just sort of have to do myself, mm-hmm. and like I'll make fun of stuff if I don't like it or if it's worth making fun of. But there's stuff I genuinely love, mm-hmm. and like that to me is the great thing. Like you know, it's funny when I was reading the books for tour. God, I was reading so many of these books. I was going through so many bad ones. I was reading a lot of the zebra paperbacks, which really don't have a lot of quality mm-hmm. control. And um, and a lot of Ru- uh, Ruby Jean Jensen, which some of her stuff's good, but it was really hard. And then I stumbled across Elizabeth Engstrom's When Darkness Loves Us. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, holy fuck. It was such a, a breath of fresh air. And, you know, some of these writers, like, like Michael Blumline's XY, I don't love that book, and a lot of it I don't think works, but it, I really admire it because he's really got something on his mind, and, and he really is conveying it in a really fascinating way. I, I don't love it, but, like, I respect that. You know what I mean? He's really bringing his A-game, and I, I can't piss on that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and one of the things also is I feel like there has to be something of value like, like there has to be something in there, like a value, like which sometimes causes me to be a little sentimental. But like, you know, the, the idea that like, so it's funny. Uh, King Greenhall is one of the authors I, I talk about a lot, who I think is just incredible. He passed away and really died brokenhearted. And, and y'all know the story. I interviewed his uh, widow Agnes a couple of times by the, over the phone when writing the book, and. Um, she called me uh, out of the blue one day. She was like, I was getting ready to go to San Diego to do some shows for We Sold Our Soul and promote the book. So it must have been last summer, I guess. And I get this call and it's like, Grady. I'm like, yeah, it's like Agnes Greenhall. I'm like, oh, hey, Agnes, how you doing? She's like, listen, they took me out of, I think she lived in Queens. She's like, they took me out of Queens and they stuck me in this home in San Diego. I'm like, oh, geez, I'm going to be in San Diego doing a show. She's like, yeah. So I hear you. I hear you do this show for paperbacks from hell, and you talk about Ken. And I'm like, yeah. I sort of end the show. Goes, yeah, that's what I heard. And I was like, yeah. Well, I'd love to have you come there. She's like, he'd be real happy about that, and just Aww. hung up. 
and I can't find contact information for anything like that. And it's like, I know it's sappy, but the idea that like, this guy died in obscurity and his books are out there again. Mm -hmm. And people know his name. Mm -hmm. In a stupid small way, it means something to me. You know, uh, it's- It means a lot to you. It, 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 well, it's like, it's a small thing, but it's mm -hmm. like, I'm really glad I was able to do that. Maybe his, you know, he doesn't have kids, I don't think, but maybe nieces or nephews or whatever are seeing his stuff and going, oh wow, like our uncle was actually yeah. a good writer. Yeah. People respect what he did. But your book, I mean, does what my favorite types of art does. You, you go down that void, you know, you, you drop us into like all these different titles, all these different stories, and suddenly I'm going to you know McKay's books and trying to right, hunt right. those down. And then you get lost yourself. Oh yeah, I mean, I, and I, people stumble across stuff I've never heard of, and they're like, they'll send me a picture, but you've heard of this? It's amazing. I'm like, no, fuck, I go get it. You know, it's like, I wanna know this stuff. There's too much of it for one person to know. It's, you know, it's interesting to me because you're, the, the entertainment is fostering almost in the way that you were just saying, kind of like a culture of sharing the finds of obscurity. I mean, that sort of exists now. And, and I think that like to an extreme, we deride that as hipsterism, right? Of going to find things that people don't know about or whatever. But like this idea of preserving culture is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. Like, what do you what do you think is the cost of of losing these things? Because you know when we were talking, you mentioned that a couple of times, and and I do think it's impactful to people who, who yeah. lose their their reputation and their contribution is erased or or just forgotten. Um, but like, what do you what do you conceive of that cost as in your head? Well, so the least powerful people get forgotten first. Women writers, writers of color, writers who are trying something crazy and outside the box, people taking risks. Those are the people who get forgotten first. Mm -hmm. So we lose this rich trove. Look, I'm not into diversity for diversity's sake. Mm -hmm. I'm into it because, you know, I've read hundreds and hundreds of horror novels by straight white guys, or maybe gay white guys, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But like, I wanna know what women we're writing about. I want to know what black people were scared of in the 80s and writing about. You know, I want to know what Hispanic people in the 70s, what the nightmares were there, what they're bringing to the table, because it's different. And they're, they're new stories. That's all I care about is new stories that are different. Like, that's what I want, because I love horror, you know? Um, and, and so I want new stuff. Um, and so that's often where you'll find it. But so, but then the risk takers, all that, they get lost first. And so what happens is you wind up with sort of this cultural amnesia where people doing stuff now, they think they're doing something new, they think they're doing something unique, and they're reinventing the wheel. They're starting behind where someone else started, and you're like, think of how much better your book would be if you knew that someone, if you knew that Joe Nazelle was writing African-American pulp horror in the 70s, and you saw what he did, and then you took that, and you took a step off that, rather than starting at zero, mm -hmm. you know? And I, so I think that's like, you forget the history, and it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't help everything go forward. It, it keeps us sort of repeating. And then the other thing is, I really do feel like um, that no one's so special. You know what I mean? Like, sure. like, like one of the things I see in horror is stuff getting recycled again and again. And mm -hmm. it's really humbling for me because I find myself doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're not so special. And it's nice to be reminded and humbled a little bit that people were doing this in the 30s. People were doing this in the 40s. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like I really, really wanted to write a werewolf, but like the great werewolf book. And then I read this book from the 30s by Guy Endor, Guy Endor, called Werewolf of Paris. Pretty obscure book. And, and one of the reasons is his family really tightly controls the rights and, mm -hmm. and they're really careful about it. I don't even know if it's in print now. Mm -hmm. And it's the great werewolf novel. Mm -hmm. And I was like... <laughs> Oh. So if I ever 
for write a werewolf book, I need to do better than that, uh-huh. you know? Right. And it's it's amazing. I mean, I'm going to spoil a little bit, of, but it's this great thing. It takes place in France during the French Revolution, and there's this guy, basically, it's like Les Miserables, this guy hunting this kid who's a werewolf all his life. He's just, and he's always getting there too late, and, and he's in the terror in Paris. It's hundreds Holy and hundreds shit. of people are being executed, and he just gives up. He's like, what's the difference? This werewolf's killed a dozen people. Like this, what are we all? Yeah. Like yeah. what? What? And he just leaves. He just he's been doing this for like forty years, and he just walks away. Amazing. And I'm like, fucking hey, that's like if you can't top, if I can't top what that, yeah. like what? Why would I write a werewolf book? You know? And it's like, and there's still good werewolf. I mean, those across the river. It's even a spoiler to say it's a werewolf book, but it's great. And you know, there's other the Howling. I think is a good werewolf book, but like you know, it's just um, it's like you you sort of like I don't know. It, it it's humbling to see that people mm-hmm. have been there doing this. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, one of the things that really pisses me off right now, or not pisses me off, makes me upset, is there's <laughs> a real healthy. backlash against fan culture. And I guess, yes. like, yeah. you know, people, I mean, you read birth movies, death or somewhere, and they're like, oh, these fans with their toxic online petitions and all this. Yeah. And I'm like, I get it. You know, people get carried away. They get really passionate about stuff. Like, you know, I, I watched someone I know break into tears. They were so upset about the end of Game of Thrones. I didn't like it either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, they were so upset. And it's something that occurred to me at Comic-Con that I think gets forgotten. Is I was at New York Comic-Con, and, and the, the attitude at Comic-Con, if you're there as, like, a, a pro, is to be very, like, oh, God, Comic-Con, all oh, so many people. And I was really doing that shit. And I was like, oh, blah, 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 blah. one more fucking cosplay Sailor Moon bumps into me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I, was, I saw, uh, he's dead now, but uh, Banana Wolverine. I don't know if you've seen it. He's a guy who always dresses up as a banana that's Wolverine and goes wow. to Comic-Con. And this little kid saw him and lost his shit. And I was like, oh my God, everyone's here because they love something. They love something so passionately that they're willing to look dumb in public over it. And they get wrought up over it. And it's love. It's this real love. And I'm like, that's, it can be really cynical. You know what I mean? Like the the world can be cynical. And I feel like that kind of like, passionate monomania and love is sometimes such a nice corrective Mm -hmm. and I love going to Comic Con now I love going to conventions now I'm just like it's annoying to get as long as the lines can get like all that stuff I'm like everyone's fucking here because they love something like it's really nice I've been going to San Diego Comic Con for nine years and it's because of that And and I try to go to panels when I can uh, of stuff that I don't really know. Yeah. So, like, I went into the Steven Universe panel because I was waiting for another panel after that. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm like, I don't know what anybody's laughing at or what they're getting teary-eyed about, but seeing this reaction is really moving. Yeah. And, you know, those articles that are about the fan petitions and the Last Jedi fans, and, yeah. you know, they're really, they're not fans, one. I mean, they're, they're talking about a lot of hate. Yeah. You know, and we tend to lump all fan culture as one thing. So when yeah. a petition comes out, ugh, release the Snyder Cut. Like, that's all <laughs> right. fans of, you know, DC fans are like. Right. And that's not true. No, exactly. And one thing is also, it's really easy to, like, throw haterade around online. Yeah. But you don't see it in person so much, yeah. I don't think. No, yeah. And, you know, there's this idea, there's something that people have talked about, like, oh, fan culture is so toxic because there's all this gatekeeping. Like, if you don't know this, this, and this about Doctor Who, I don't want to waste my yeah. time on you. And I'm like, dude... You're having a different experience than me. I can't tell you how many times I've gone up to a fan of Pokemon, which I don't understand, or the new Doctor Who, which I don't understand, or like Star Trek, and said, I don't get it, man. And 
fan, they will drop anything. Yeah. And they'll be like, you should watch this and this. And like, this is why I love it. And this is why you'll like it. And like, they will spend, they could be on their way to their mother's like birthday party. And they will spend an hour with you just telling you why they love it. And when you go to the conventions and you're in it with the fans, yeah. uh, whether they're your fan, like fans of the thing that you're into or not, and you disagree or you want to talk about it, there's an actual conversation. Yeah. Whereas online, it's just people talking at each other. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so like, and you know, and I got to say, man, you know, it's funny. Someone was on Twitter recently and they're like, so serious question, guys. Like I'm writing this book and like I was homeschooled in the 90s. So how in the 90s before the internet did people find out like about like if a band was coming to town or like news uh, about your band? And reading the thread, I was like, I was thinking, I was like, you know what? We hung out. Like you talk to people yeah. you may not really like, but you knew they liked The Cure. Yeah. And so you hung out because they knew where The Cure shows yeah, were going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Or like you went to like whatever dumb coffee shop or record store and you looked at the flyers or you looked at the postcards or you looked in the paper. Right. But it was a lot of it was hanging out and talking to people. You had your comic book friends. Yeah. You had your Star Trek friends. Yeah. yeah. And those worlds would cross over some. Yeah. And like, and it was like, and I was like, and that's why I love like conventions and stuff because it's like people are sitting there in like meat space yeah, like in this really inefficient thing that you have to travel to get there and find a place right. to stay and you're like showering and shitting in some strange bathroom <laughs> but like you know it's like but you're there in person and I yeah. think that's so valuable yeah we you know Brad and I have been talking a lot about um, um, sharing cultural knowledge and like the importance of kind of like what you look at with you know, paperbacks from hell looking at all these books that have kind of gone by like the importance of sharing movies that are out there and bringing attention to things and we talk a lot about like the idea of curators but I think fandom at its best is the like the curatorial solution to preserving the knowledge of all of these things yeah um, I think that's such a huge part. And it's it a group mind. Out when when it looks like it's it's when it looks like it's broken or it's talked about like it's broken. Yeah. Like, I'd so much rather talk about the things that are um, really awesome yeah. within fandom and the value that they bring. I mean, fandom at its best is a group mind that, like you said, preserves a tradition. You know, and it's outsourced into so many different people because it's like one person can't cover it all, and it's also you know. Listen, there, there's a, a guy who lived with us. He was a med student, and he, like, roomed in our house. And, and we knew. He's a family friend. But when I was growing up, and, like, he really loved, like, Clint Eastwood movies and, mm -hmm. like, and, and westerns. Like, but not old westerns. Like, you know, Clint Eastwood and, like, Extreme Prejudice yeah, and Walter. Yeah, yeah. And, like, <laughs> I watched those with him. And it was how we talked to each other. Mm -hmm. And I was 13, and he was 22, and we had nothing in common. But... That's how we talk to each other. And he sort of passed that love on to me. Mm -hmm. And like uh, my niece, like she, as she grew up, she was a big reader and she always wanted to read. She liked Harry Potter and I would recommend stuff and she got into paperbacks and all this. And it's how we talk to each other. She'll send me pages of the book she's reading on text yeah, yeah. or like, and it's how we sort of communicate about something that's not, how you doing, how's work? You know what I mean? It's like, it's a way to share something with someone. So how do you feel right now then about young adult Fiction, what what people are reading, what's popular today versus what was popular when the books you, you're excited yeah. about. I mean, Harry Potter changed everything, sure. you know. And it's like, and and I've I've seen the movies, I haven't read the books. And Same. YA stuff for me, like I wrote some of it a while, a long time ago, and and I read a lot in the. And it's not really a genre either. It's like that's it's, a messy genre. It, to, true, but I mean, you go into Barnes and Noble, and it's yeah, got a, I know a section. You know? I know, <laughs> and so one. 
I'm fucking glad it's so popular and makes yeah. so much money because it really floats all boats. Um, two, I don't know enough about it. You know what uh, I mean? There's so much of it. But you're um, not interested in wading into it? I am some, and I, you know, but it's also Sturgeon's Law, right? 90% of everything's crap. And so, like, I read some amazing YA books. I also read some really shitty ones. Um, and, like, right now, it's like everything I'm reading is for work, uh, and I, everything I watch is for work. So I've got hundreds of pre-97 YA books mm-hmm. I need to read. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like like the modern stuff, there's people who know way more than I do. And like it really, I'll see people put together like, the 10 best YA books about wizards who live inside frogs. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't even know this was a genre. Like, holy crap. Um, and I always feel like, you know, like when I retire, when I'm like 80 or 90 mm-hmm. and I'm physically infirm, there's so many books I'm going to need to go back and read. I'm actually looking forward to uh-huh. it. Like video games, like I just don't oh, play yeah. games anymore. Yeah. I used to yeah. love to, but I don't. I just can't keep up. So like when I'm 95, I'll game. You know, I'll finally get to play Grand Theft Auto Four. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, same. Uh, so, but those books for work, you're still. You, it sounds like. I mean, you, you're saying you're still energized by all. all, all of oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, what was it? I was just reading. Um, oh man. There's this guy I've been talking about tomorrow, Jack W. Thomas. Holy shit. He wrote drug scare novels uh, in the 70s. But his, I mean, if you can imagine Elmore Leonard writing a drug scare novel, I mean, it's Jack Thomas. It's great. Sold. yeah, he's a probation officer, Whoa. and he—I he, think he's—he's a, he's a little too with it for his own good. <laughs> but like, and, and he's a little moralistic, but like his stuff is wild. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's like these big tap. I mean, there's this one novel he writes. It's like this tapestry novel about this senator's son who flies his like private plane to Mexico like cuz he's learning to fly and he starts smuggling in heroin and gets in over his head but it's like you spend time with the narcs at these high schools you spend time with this weird dude who lives in a motel who's this old creepy guy where the kids come to like shoot up there's like this huge forest fire burn sequence you spend time with the firefighters there's this black kid who's trying to like go straight he like had a drug problem he's in high school but he gets framed and he winds up putting on a suicide vest and like I mean, Whoa. it's just sprawling and sprawling and sprawling. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And it's like, and, and it bums me out because his stuff already, he, most of his covers were done by like really famous cover artists like Larry Bama and people mm-hmm. like that. And so like they, uh, they are James Bama, sorry, but they really go for like a lot of money online. Oh, and like, yeah. I wish people were reading them because they're yeah. fucking Ooh. amazing. Huh. Uh, and, and that's like, that's a great thing about being a fan is you think you've read it all and yeah. then you read a book and you're like, whoa, yeah, wake up. Oh, totally. And it's like, and you know, and it's, it's one of the things I realized is like, I don't do short stories. I'm just bad uh, at them. I used to love writing them and I've just gotten bad and my head's too much in novels. But I've realized that I like imitating other styles and I'm like, shit, why haven't I done an R.L. Stein short story? Uh, like, you know, why haven't I done like a Jack W. Thomas like draw? Like, I'm like, oh, that's an outlet for this stuff that like I can have fun with. Because mm-hmm. one of the really fun things about like imitating other styles is you have to sort of break it down and see why it works and like what it is. It makes you think harder about it. So I'm actually like, once I finish the book I'm working on, um, 
and a script. That's sort of what I'm looking forward to doing this summer. Hmm. So you have this obsession for details and this passion for unearthing things as, a, as a, like a fount of, of newness to you. Yeah. Um, how does that inform your script writing? Like, it, it does and it doesn't. You know what I mean? There's sort of two separate things. I mean, the one thing that's hard is it, it makes it really hard to have a new idea. I'm like, oh, wait, that got done in that book. And, oh, you know, Elizabeth Ingstrom did that. And, oh, you know, uh, Anne River Sins did that. Like, so it's hard. But one thing I've realized is that the best scripts and books too are really simple concepts and you just drill down on them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes people get too fancy trying to come up with these elaborate concepts. And mm -hmm. I'm like, for me, I'm like, if I just take a vampire and really just drill down and apply the reality principle to that, I can yeah. just go forever on that. And so it's actually reading a lot of these books has made me simplify what I write because it's mm -hmm. like, I just want that one idea, simple idea, and just drill down on it, you know? Like, you know, ESP, like the ability to read someone's mind, like I keep wanting to do a book on it because it's just horrifying when you think yeah, about it. Like it's I awful. Yeah, yeah. Like Jesus Christ. Billy and I were just talking about that. I do not want that power. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, you know, uh, did y'all see that movie Little Joe that's been making uh, the festival rounds? No. Not yet, no. Dude, it's an update on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Really? Awesome. But it's like, it's basically a, a pharmaceutical company has yeah. developed a plant that has a natural uh, compound that just makes people really, really happy and content. And it's like, oh, that's such a great idea, man. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, it's Little Shop of Horrors meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but done in a really Cronenberg way. And I'm like, awesome. fuck, that's good. So, Satanic Panic, mm -hmm. getting to that, I mean, you're, you were talking about it earlier and how that era really upsetting, yeah. you know, and an era that was very popular, uh, lots of movies around it seemed to drift away, but it seems like that's coming back again. Well, do you mean like the, 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 the aesthetic of it or the fiction of it? Or well, the probably, the, probably both is yeah. the answer, but like I, I'm, I'm talking about the fiction of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, there's always been this idea, always, 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 like that our lives are controlled by forces beyond our control. Mm -hmm. And we're all just cogs in a machine. And there's a 1% of elites out there who benefit from our stupidity and us being sheeple. And life's just a shitty grind and you're never gonna win and you're never gonna join the elites unless you're willing to do something horrible. And that's the way the world is. And that's why things are the way they are. And, you know, in the 19th century, the 1% the was Jews or Catholics, you know. In the turn of the century, it was white slavers. And later on, it became like, you know, communists. Then it became like, you know, in the 70s, Satanists, you know, became the, now it's like, you know, if you're on the left, it's the 1%. And if you're on the right, it's the new world order or the deep state, you know. So it's like, or the global elites. And so it, it's always been there. And I feel like, People, I find it really a, a much more pervasive idea and a much more widely accepted idea now than it has been even in the 90s. Like, normal, real people believe this is true. And on the left and the right, because usually this is sort of a thing of the right, and now mm -hmm. it's on both sides. And, like, I mean, there's been left-wing stuff too, but, like, it's not as pervasive, and now it's on both. And, it's, and so I feel like one reason that's coming back is it's a cartoony way to sort of examine the hall of mirrors we're living in uh -huh. at an arm's length you know and uh and, and in a way that keeps it light and do you think commenting on it now talking about it has an effect of uh challenging those you know that that fear challenging uh, that phobia or like, reinforcing or it reinforcing yeah it. i don't know and i i worry it's reinforcing yeah. it you know like i i'm a smart guy i love the history of this stuff and looking at where they came from i can write a script ha 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 dude i don't know 
Yeah. yeah, maybe it does reinforce it for someone, just even in a subconscious way, which is which is bad news. Like I just like um, going to my Star Trek fandom, huge Star Trek fan. The new Star Trek Discovery comes out, and like I would say, Star Trek's always been around social science fiction and you know uh, tackling societal ills in a sci-fi way. But when Discovery comes out. People are like, this is dark Star Trek. This just doesn't work. Yeah. You're, 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 you know, there's nothing here. Uh, I just want my Star Trek to be fun and enjoyable. And I'm like, well, but you love original series Star Trek. You love Next Generation Star Trek. They were all commenting on these things. Yeah. It just seems like in a popular consumership right now wants just to enjoy the thing. And whatever they're presented, they'll just enjoy the thing. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't know. Like, it's a weird thing. Like, Satanic Panic, I mean, it is, there's a one percenters who run everything. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm like, shit. You know, like, like it's not even challenging that notion. And mm-hmm. and there's some stuff in it that, like, sort of, like, flips it. It was important to me that sort of flipped it. But, like, you know, it's, it, I do worry that it's it's reinforcing a really toxic mm-hmm. idea. You know, it's, um, I, ideas are alive, you know, and, yeah. and they do have lives of their own. Boots Riley said something around "Sorry to Bother You" coming out, where you, where it's it's art's not meant to combat another person's opinion or even convert somebody to their yeah. opinion. It's a rallying cry. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's true too. Yeah. You know, I mean, definitely my books, like mm-hmm. you know, they're really trying to be rallying cries. You know, someone someone was saying. Um, they were like, oh, your books are like, if I had to put them in a genre, I'd call them hope punk. Like, Ooh, you know, like, oh, like, like, like right, splatter. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. because I really do, you know, I do feel like, um, like, what's the point of like, it's one of the things I hate that I think is always a cheap ending in a horror movie where it's like, boom, everyone dies, you know? Yeah. Oh no, like there's no stopping this. Yeah. And I'm always like, but you're just stopping your story too early. Can you just continue it a little bit and get to an ending? Because, because I do think that things turn out okay a ridiculous number of times, or at least in a way that's livable, mm-hmm. you know, like... You're feel, you're, you are hopeful. Like, yeah, right oh, now. yeah, 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 totally. I mean, you know, look, people are generally okay, you know, like, I mean, you know, and, and part of that's because I grew up in a family with some people who I think, you know, had views and, and, and stuff on the world yeah. that would really be appalling, but I got to know them as people, and it's like, yeah, okay, so-and-so is kind of racist and weird and horrible, but they're also a really deeply lovely considerate kind right. person in these other places so like i can't just dismiss them out of hand right you know? right yeah i mean that's certainly my personal experience you know you, you have to make way with your family yeah you gotta you gotta live together or you or not i mean i guess you could just abandon them but that's not what i wanted to yeah do. and so i just choose to talk about the things that i know are safe or enjoyable with those people. yeah and i also feel like rubbing shoulders with people who have really different views from you and being forced to interact with them as a human being, you're like, no one's horrible. You know what I mean? Like, your, your, your politics are abhorrent to me, but, you know, you genuinely do great work with rescuing animals, and you, you know what I mean? There's, there's like, no one's awful. Like, yeah. everyone has redeemable features and, and things that are good about them. I mean, I'm sure there's some horrible people out there, but, like, you know, Ted Bundy worked at a suicide hotline. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I'm reading a lot of true crime books for uh, the book I'm writing right now, and Anne Rules, The Stranger Beside yeah, Me, yeah, yeah. about Ted Bundy. She's like, this was hard for me because I saw him save lives. She's like, I saw him save over and over again, talk people out of crisis situations. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I can't put it together mm-hmm. with this guy who did this to these women. She's like, I can't put that together. 
Um, you know, so it's, it's, I'm not saying that redeems Ted Bundy. One doesn't no, make the not. other better. It's not, yeah. it's not a, um, it's not a transaction. It's just a truth, you know? That people are more than one thing. Yeah, and it's not like you total up a score at the end and you're like, well, your positives outweigh your negatives or vice versa. There's no scorekeeping. It's just that's who people are. Uh, where we're hitting our mark, do you want to ask your, your question? Sure. I, I'm pretty sure we asked Grady the last time we talked to him, uh, Grady and Ted, but... Bring it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, through the podcast and through writing for Film School Rejects, we've had uh, a lot of opportunities to talk with uh, filmmakers, creators, people who are putting themselves out there and really leaning into their passion and making art. Uh, and I think the one through line through all of those things is that that's really fucking hard. Um, and it is, it is, it's fraught with failure and feelings of lowness when things don't work out right. And so since we know that, we like to end on a positive note. Um, so for you, is there a single moment that you look back to in your career, you know, your experience with your recent projects or anything like that, that you will use to lean on in low times in the future when uh, things are making you feel low and, and it's something that makes you feel like it was all worthwhile? I don't think I get low. Honestly, like, like, you know, I'm fascinated by this. Please. Yeah. I would love to know. I mean, like writing, we sold our souls was yeah. a rough fucking year of my life and it was hard, Yeah. but I created imaginary people who dragged me out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I realized doing that, like it's this, I am so lucky to do this and yeah, things can be tense and shitty and all this, but I'm not working at McDonald's. You know, I could be, I could be digging ditches. I could be working in a call center. I could be, you know, I've done filing. I've done office jobs. I've done that stuff. I've done retail. I am so freaking lucky. And it's honestly, even at their hardest, mm -hmm. like I'm so fucking excited. And I know that sounds really Pollyanna-ish, but I'm so, like, I, when I get down, I'm like, I am supporting myself and my family by writing stuff, like yeah. how the fuck lucky am I? Like, you know, like it really is like a privilege and it's, um, it, 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 it's this weird thing where every book I've done, movies not so much because those don't quite come as personally. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just not about my life really. Sure. But like they solve problems for me. Like We Sold Our Souls got me into such a dark place in my life. And literally I spent so much time thinking about Chris Pulaski and like she was real to me in my head and she got me out of that. Mm -hmm. And she is part of me. And she's this tough older sister that I do have older sisters who I love, but she's sort of the ideal one. And she's with me always, you know, writing my best friend's exorcism about these high school friendships and how intense they were out of the blue at the end of it. My best friend from high school who I hadn't seen in 15 years, mm -hmm. just got in touch with me. We, we hadn't really fallen out. We just drifted apart yeah. and um, we reconnected and I still go down to Virginia to see him and his family in Charlottesville. And like, yeah. I know his kids now and like, it's really a huge thing in my life. And I'm convinced that that book got me that, you know what I mean? Like, um, like paperbacks from hell, like got me through so much, introduced me to so much. I, you know, I just got off the phone with Jill Bauman, the artist, you know, yeah, and like, and, and, you know, like I'm, I'm doing stuff with her and like, so it's like all this stuff is just, it's made my life. Mm -hmm. 
And to, to hate it or loathe it or to be so depressed by it because a project doesn't work out, there's other projects. Like, I, I can't do that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like a very, I'm a very uh, unphysical, non-threatening shark. I just have to keep <laughs> moving forward. That is the perfect moment to end on Hope Punk right there. <laughs> I love it. That works yeah, perfectly. Grady, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really do appreciate it. Oh, dudes, it. totally. I love it. Um, can we point our listeners to anything special right now? Uh, no, just I keep my events coming up. I've got a bunch of stuff this summer. Just go to gradyhendricks.com and there's an events page and it's all the crap I'm doing so you can know where to avoid. If you <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have not seen one of his uh, performances, I highly, highly recommend it. It's incredibly inspirational. Oh, so. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you. Man, I love that dude. Oh, yeah. Grady is the best. He's great. Um, you know, I, I talked a lot about sort of the lasting effect some of the uh, Overlook Film Festival has had on me. Um, and having watched Paperbacks from Hell 2 and listened to his closing rendition, uh, his rousing endorsement of Christopher Pike novels uh, told via a conversation between Christopher Pike and God... Uh, which just goes wildly off the rails. Uh, the first thing I did when I got back to Virginia was go to my local McKay's and buy about 10 Christopher Pike novels. Did you get Whisper of Death? Uh, I think that I did, actually. I, I, so Whisper of Death is the yes, one I that's did. about teenagers Roxanne and Pepper who have one sexual encounter together, get pregnant, and then Roxanne's like, well, I got to go get an abortion. Yes. And then they go to the clinic, but she's at the clinic, and she says, no, never mind. I want to get out of here. They leave the clinic. They go back home. Their town is deserted. There's a few friends still straggling around, but they can't find the parents and the adults and all those people. And people, they, they, what they all, the only person they have in common, the friends together, is a, is a, a kid named Betty Sue. And Betty Sue was um, a, a, a storyteller in her own right. And mm -hmm. they find her journals and they're going through her journals and they're reading all these very grim and macabre tales. And slowly but surely, all their friends start dying off in the same fashion as the people being murdered in her tales. And like, well, who's, who's killing their friends? Do they have a, a murderer in their ranks? And spoilers... It's Betty Sue, the ghost, <laughs> who actually is the ghost of the fetus who was aborted Amazing. inside Roxanne. Amazing. And this is a teen YA novel. It's amazing. Whisper of Death. I haven't yeah. read it. I need to. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. But yeah, you went to McKay's and you bought like a oh, ton yeah. of Christopher Pike novels. You know, it's what's funny though is because uh, when a lot of these were coming out, by the time that I was even aware of them, I had already sort of as a young reader moved on to adult fiction. And so, you know, this is out and I'm I'm reading, you know, Michael Crichton novels or, or whatever else, you know, that, that are out there that I can get my hands on. And so Christopher Pike is an author that I totally missed, but I think probably writes the type of pulp fiction that I would really enjoy. So this is my project. I started with Bury Me Deep. Uh, it's the story of an 18-year-old high school student who's going to Hawaii uh, for her spring break class with two of her friends. Uh, she is a virgin. 
She's very concerned about what sex will ultimately do her, to her when she has it, uh, but she's convinced that uh, if she doesn't read enough about sex before she has it, she will lose interest in reading about sex afterwards, and so she must arm herself with the knowledge by reading about sex. I'm 25 pages into the novel. This is what I know about the character of Jean so far. It is amazing. Oh, man. I, I'm going to have to do this, too. I'm going to have to pick up some Christopher Pike novels. You know, like, as Grady said in the conversation, you know, before Harry Potter... No one was paying attention of what was happening right, in YA. Oh, yeah. And it was angrier. It was grimier. It was filthier kind of fiction. Oh, yeah. And it was something that I really wasn't a part of. I, th- I, I thought I had read some Christopher Pike novels, but since having this conversation and, and experiencing paperbacks from hell, too, I realized I don't remember any of this stuff. Yeah. So I think I just remember the covers of Christopher Pike novels that you would see in bookstores. Well, you know, my, my wife was familiar with him and, you know, Danielle told me when I was getting these books, she said, yeah, you know, I read two of his books and found them so disturbing and upsetting with the, like the setting of the story yeah. and the events that happened that it totally turned me off to reading any All of right, his well, books. that makes sense. That's an endorsement in my book though. <laughs> so I bought 10 of them. <laughs> all right. All right. And you can head over to Billy's Twitter feed and see that basket of Christopher Pike books that you scored at McKay's oh, yeah. books. Oh, yeah. uh, on that note, Billy. Yep. Our listeners, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can find that photograph uh, and others uh, at WBDAS on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, and you can also find me as a co-host of Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, which is a podcast I do with my nine-year-old daughter, where we work together to expand her cinematic horizons. And you can find our other It Modcast dorks, Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren, Darren Smith at The Disco Dork, Brian Young at The Turtle Dork, and I, of course, am Brad Gullickson at Mouth Dork. Follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at It Modcast. Come back next week. We are talking to Adam Egypt Mortimer about his film, mm. Daniel Isn't Real. So good. Uh, I, I mean, it's my favorite film that I saw at the Overlook Film Same. Festival, and uh, it's probably in my top five favorite films of the year so far. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this chat. So until next time, guys, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 